0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Disruptive Voices. My name is James Paskins.
1: And I'm Nina Quash. In today's episode, we're exploring the interesting relation between people and their environment, specifically the urban environment.
0: We're joined today by Professor Nick Tyler, who is Director of the UCL Centre for Transport Studies, as well as being the Chadwick Professor of Civil Engineering. Welcome Nick, and thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's great fun to be here.
1: So Nick, we often talk about how people perceive the city, how they live in it and behave in it. And the implication is that people and city are two concepts which we examine in relation to one another. But of course, the definition of a city is intrinsically linked to the people who inhabit it. Could you talk about this nuance and why it is central to your research?
2: Yeah, well, of course, to start with, we haven't evolved to live in cities. This is a sort of thing that we've done over the past few thousand years, but more particularly over the past couple of hundred years. And we are still actually in evolutionary stakes. We're still sitting in the savannah, which is a very, very different kind of environment. Big, wide open spaces, huge skies, nothing very much around, got to hunt around for food and things like that, but essentially a very horizontal vista. And today we're in a city, if you go to like a archetypal city, like let's say uh, New York, for example, what you get in New York is lots of very, very tall buildings, very hard surfaces, very narrow horizons, very small skies. And all of our internal systems are in total frustration because we are kind of there for horizontal stuff. We're very good at extracting information from tiny sounds out of a large expanse or tiny things in the corner of our eye and things like that. That's what we're evolved for. But when you're in this tall, narrow environment of the city, all of that is wrong. The sound that you think comes from the left actually came from the right. And you lose your relationship with sunlight. And we know when we do that, you start to get very confused about where you are and where you're going. And there's quite a lot of research around that. So actually, the city is a really disorienting space for people. So I think it's really important to start at that point that we are in a very, very unnatural, inhuman environment. and yet. We have over half the population of the planet living in cities, and very often they are there because they really don't have an alternative in reality. You know, 80% or so of of the UK population lives in cities. And if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, it would have been maybe 2%. You know, it's, it's tiny. And so how we actually evolve ourselves for that is actually really important. So roll up 21st century. We're going to be living in cities. So how do we make those cities fit the path of the evolution that we've come along? And how do we actually make that work? Well, the first thing we have to do is kind of step one, forget the city. Let's talk about people. So the first thing that I do when I look at urban design is I look at what people need in order to be a human. And one of the interesting things about human evolution is about the sort of survival of homo sapiens. And why was that? And there's some sort of thought around, it, at least, that one of the reasons the Homo sapiens survived and the other hominids didn't is related to what we now call sociality, the ability to communicate, to collaborate and things like that and do things together. And that's kind of hardwired into our system. So sociality is a really important thing. That's the ability to start up a conversation with somebody you don't know is a good indicator of sociality. And Therefore, we should design a city so that we can enhance sociality, because that's a very fundamental thing for us. So how do you strike up a conversation in a city? What kind of things do you need? Well, you need space. You need space of a certain size. If it's too big, you can't do it. If it's too small, you can't do it. And that was established in the 1960s, more or less. People like Edward Hall studying how people interacted with each other in a city. But they didn't know why. And it's only really recently with some of the work that we've been doing has been looking at, you know, why is it that people have conversations at 1.2 metres apart, as opposed to two metres apart in COVID or less than that? Why is it such a routine distance across pretty much all cultures? Well, it just so happens that that's how your voice works. You can communicate because you can hear your own voice at a level that feels right. And the person that you're talking to can hear your voice because that's how their ears work. So it kind of works. It so happens that your eye can see maybe three people at that distance without having to move too much outside the useful field of vision. And so you can start to have a connection with maybe three people, so you have groups of four. And the faveal vision of your eye, when it extends out and it subtends out to that distance, it happens to be that the area of that very high acute, high color resolution part of your vision is about the size of your face. So it's very easy for you to be able to make those kinds of connections. And that's why we do that. So that's how we design a city to begin to be somewhere that people can converse. People can actually relate to each other In this kind of way and then we can build the city outwards from that.
1: So how come there is such disconnect between what people would actually need and what we have built over the past decades and centuries and how do we move forward in the future with that in mind and make it more inclusive, focused on well-being, quality of life and community?
2: I think the answer to that is that we have always seen cities as a top-down thing. Somebody has to plan it. I mean, funnily enough, actually the city of London, the the financial center of London, actually was kind of designed by feet. That's why all the roads are very wriggly and small and so on. And we've kind of retained the same street network for several hundred years. But generally after the industrial revolution, where you started to sort of compact cities, started to build big cities with big populations, somebody designed them. And then they had a concept. And if you go to the United States, This is a very, very powerful concept about zoning and all those sorts of things. We'll put industry here, we'll put housing there, we'll put schools here, and it's all designed top-down, whereas we live bottom-up. So we live people-to-people, and those sort of sociality questions are actually all bottom-up. And until now, we haven't really had the choice. But in the future, this is, I think, where we need to turn in terms of city design is actually looking much more, instead of building the city from the top down, I have a concept of a city which is going to look like this. I need to think of it as I have people who need to interact like this. They need to have these things in order to survive on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever basis. And we
0: build upwards from that to create the city. So Nick, just picking up on that, we have industrial cities, post-industrial cities. What do we do to adapt what already exists, because obviously New York exists at the moment. How do you retrofit a more sociable, well-being focused urban design?
2: I think actually it's much, much easier than we would think,
0: he said, (laughs) Um,
2: because the power of people is actually really quite strong. So, if you look at someone like Robin Dunbar, Robin Dunbar, an anthropologist who looks at the sizes of group interactions and things like that, and his famous Dunbar numbers, I mean, they're fairly controversial, but the Dunbar numbers are quite interesting. So, 150 people that you can sort of kind of maintain their coordinates in your head, and the sort of deeper knowledge of people of maybe five. So, those sort of kind of group numbers. So, let's not worry too much about whether it's five or six or 150 or 200, but whatever it is, the concept is actually, I think, very interesting. So, if I look at the street I live on, which is in London. In this street, we have around about 300 people, about 120 households, but about 100 houses with different kinds of tenure. So there's some are whole houses, some are flats and things like that. So there's about 300 people live on this street. I would know more or less to recognise most of those 300 people, but I don't know them very well. I'll know maybe three or four of them much better than the others. And this street, we can decide things. So we decided about the car parking zone. We decided about the trees, which trees. We decided about the number of cycle parking spaces as a street. We have a street email network. We share things backwards and forwards in this street, and it's within that street. Now, it happens to be a street. If I look at the street parallel, they do different things. So what you're looking at, just in that tiny little microcosmic example, you've got two streets which are quite independent of each other, but we kind of know each other. But I don't have the knowledge of that street that I do of this one. And I don't have an email connection with that street. Some of the people on this street do. And so you end up with the streets actually coming together to create a larger, if you like, sort of community, sort of neighborhood. And then you find that that neighborhood becomes enough that there is a corner shop that supplies several of those neighborhoods. And that corner shop during the period of COVID, for example, that corner shop has been a massive centre for people to encounter. They buy their food there, they buy whatever they need there and so on from various parts, and that it becomes a communication centre. So you've got inside a borough of, what, quarter of a million people or whatever it is in the borough, you've actually got lots of these little tiny pieces of the neighbourhood. Now, if we allowed politically and technically those small communities to be able to make the kinds of decisions that we are able to make. The council allows us to make uh, those kinds of decisions that normally would have been taken at the town hall. If they were to do that throughout the borough, you would actually be looking at a borough which consists of, I don't know how many it would be, several hundred, certainly, maybe thousands of those kinds of small communities, each one of which is self-determining each one of which can make decisions, each one of which has its internal networks and relationships. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. This doesn't. I'm not saying at all that everybody loves each other. And there you can start to build that up. So I think, actually, this street, these houses were built probably at the beginning of the 20th century. So this would be a retrofit, but actually it's the buildings and the hardware that is retrofit. The people, they are the dynamic community. So if you start from the principle of the dynamic community but you enable that community to be able to make the kinds of decisions that enables it to exercise itself, then you are going to be doing your retrofitting.
0: I just want to ask one other question on that, which is, we've spoken about the infrastructure, we've spoken about the people, it feels like another piece of the puzzle is probably the political power. And it sounds like a certain amount of power needs to be devolved back to the community from wherever it sits at the moment. I wondered if you had anything to say on that. It is very interesting that the local authority in this case has devolved
2: that power to the street. I mean, that's a very interesting move because it's a level much, much smaller than than the political divisions. So it is, I think, very interesting that they have done that. And that, of course, is absolutely true. There are some decisions which you couldn't take at the street level. It would be wrong to do that. But I think where at all possible, you should always make decisions as close to the coal face as you possibly can. And therefore, if you're looking at having to replace a tree... Why do you have to take that decision in the town hall? It's absolutely stupid to do that. You should go to the people who are going to have the tree there and say, well, what would you like to do about the tree? And then let the people work out what they think about the tree. So we had the communication through the email that we would then discuss what kind of trees we would like and the technical aspects of which trees are good and which trees are bad, and what gender tree and all of those sorts of things. And then we can come up with a tree and we go to the council and say, this is the tree we kind of tree we have chosen. And they come along later this year, they're going to bring it in. So the council was able to provide some levels of technical expertise that the street didn't have, and they were able to provide the resource for the tree and the tree. And they are going to install the tree and, and all of those sorts of things. But essentially, the decision about the tree was actually very much taken by the street. So it's having that kind of interaction of deciding what gets decided by whom. That certainly does need to be sorted out. But when it is, it works really well.
1: In that process, what can old and new cities learn from each other? Or has our understanding of cities evolved historically?
2: I'm pretty cynical about that. If I were going to be disruptive, I would say we have no idea what goes on in cities. (laughs) Uh, Because I think we look at cities very professionally. And there's lots of technical ways of looking at cities and we can have lots of statistics about one city and another city about population density, about the density of roads, the density of traffic, the time lapses and so on inside the city. There's loads and loads and loads and loads of technical ways that we can use and learn and teach people to evaluate cities. But I don't think we understand them at all. We need to understand how the people interact and how they converse and what makes it easier and harder for that to happen. And I don't think we really understand, we kind of understand it happens, but we don't really understand so well the deep neurological, physiological, psychological, physical elements of how those things happen and why and what causes it. And that means that we have to bring, I think, a much closer understanding of the neurology that is actually driving the interface, if you like, between all of that stuff that's out there, all of the environment that's out there, that actually arrives inside your body through your sensorial pathways. And the great integrator of all of that is the brain. And it's from that integrated set of information that you figure out what your perception of the world is. And therefore, we need to understand that process. And it's only very recently that we've had the technology to be able to study how the brain actually does that integrating process while you're in that environment. And so we're right at the beginning of beginning to ask the kind of question that with the hope of being able to answer it as to what that mechanism actually
0: is. Well, that kind of question sounds like the kind of question that cries out for a cross-disciplinary approach because you're integrating things like urban planning and psychology and neuropsychology. It's huge amounts of things. Who else do you work with at the university to look into these issues?
2: Well, I work with people in neurology and cognitive neuroscience, um, psychology, psychiatry, orthopedics, ophthalmology, the Ear Institute, We have done stuff with the Slade. We do some things with the Bartlett, with the architects and planners, engineering, mechanical engineering. We're about to start doing some stuff with the Institute for Sustainable Heritage. Great disappointment for me and frustration for me is we don't have a music department in UCL, so we'll just create one. Don't tell the provost. Um, it's, it's our secret.
1: <laughs> what role does music and acoustics in general play in your understanding of cities, behaviours and transports, and your research in general?
2: Well, the sensorial system that you have, I mean, most people are aware that we have five senses. So we work actually we're up to about 35 senses at the moment and I think there are many more. If I go to some cultures they will tell me there's 200. But I think all of our information from the environment comes through our sensorial pathways and we deal with that in rather different ways. So some things like vision and hearing you sort of kind of you see things and you hear things. But actually there's an awful lot of more complexity in doing that. But actually if you take something like rhythm for example if you have a sense of rhythm that is kind of combining different things which might be sound or might be vision or whatever and processing them in a way that you are able to distinguish between intervals between things whether that's sounds or light or physical things and so on and that is part of your brain's integrating process of actually joining all this stuff together so that you have a perception of the environment so young gail who is a, a danish architect very very interested in public spaces. And he always says that he likes Copenhagen because the buildings, they have quite tall, narrow buildings that well, not so tall, but I mean, they're just narrow. And he said they take four seconds to pass in front of the building if you're walking in front of the building. And that is a very comforting rhythm to have a, a refresh on your peripheral vision every four seconds is kind of fit. Another, Ernst Popper in Germany is, was doing a lot of work on how the brain aggregates information in chunks of four seconds and it kind of comes together that you understand rhythm you understand why a grandfather clock says tick tock and not tick tick because of the way that the brain is aggregating the data with the sound the actual data is exactly the same so why do we and most other languages talk about two sounds for a grandfather clock and the answer is that the brain imposes a weight on one in order to make sense of the rhythm so once it establishes that actually this is a pulse as opposed to a random thing, it then says, oh, but then to make sense, one must be more important than the other. So I will place that, that weight on it. And that is the beginning of rhythm. Now, the best people in the world ever to understand rhythm are musicians. So musicians have a fantastic sensibility to this. So we, we work with musicians on rhythm and how rhythm applies to space and how do they perceive space. But then we find that they're also very good at perceiving space orally. So when a musician walks into a room, they hear the room and the room makes sense to them. So I can distort that. If I take them to a room where, let's say, it looks like a big room, but it sounds like a small room, it will take them a few seconds to figure that one out. And we can use that kind of distortion to understand better what should the acoustics be. And then you can look at frequencies and the ability to retain a melody over time. So what musicians are, why they are so brilliant, why no university should be without a music department is because musicians bend time. That's what they do. We're stuck with the hegemony of a Newtonian time. Even Einstein sort of, you know, was thinking about time in a, in a very sort of clocky kind of way. But musicians don't. Musicians bend it. They stretch it and they shrink it and they play with time and make it make sense within the musical thing. Now, when you go to a street and you sense that street as being something where you can stretch or compress the time in that street, in the space that you're at, and how that alters your perception of that street, then you're starting to create a street. So we work with musicians to do that. Dance is another one, and dance, dance is fantastic. The great thing about dancers on top of the music, because obviously dancers also are very, very fine rhythmatists. But dancers also have this sense of a space of movement. So the dynamics of movement, how can I move in this space? This is what a dancer does when they enter a space. They will suss out how they can move in that space. Whereas a civil engineer or an architect, they go and they look at angles and they look at light patterns and they look at color and it's all very static. But dancers are much, much more physically dynamic, if you like, about their perception of space. I think musicians are orally dynamic about how they look at space.
0: I think this brings me on to the next question, which is about Pearl. So you've been conducting experiments about urban space for many years now. Can you tell us something about your previous experiments at Pamela and what's going to be happening at the new facility, Pearl? So but I should perhaps say
2: Pamela is a laboratory, <laughs> um, a pedestrian accessibility and movement environment laboratory. We set it up in 2006. And basically what that enables us to do is to construct a physical environment, change the lighting, change the noise in it, and then enable people to be able to do things in that. And then we can measure what they do. And we've done a lot of work with ophthalmology in there, a little bit with audiology, but we also do very, if you like, quite practical things. We've helped London Underground, for example, in designing their new tube train. We were quite extensively involved in the Thameslink project to try and make that work by designing trains and getting people to get on and off it so we could actually understand much better what the interface was between the station platform, the train itself, and the people crossing from one to the other, and how that works and how that affects the timetable. Because how many trains you can run depends on how long they're going to be in the stations and all of that sort of thing so we've done a lot of work on that we're currently involved in a, a randomized controlled trial on a gene replacement therapy jointly with two universities in the united states and we've been involved a little bit with design of hearing systems we built a pizza restaurant in the lab to help the audiologists understand what it was like to be in a restaurant it's quite odd because you'd have thought they would have been in one <laughs> um, but what they had never been in was a restaurant with a person with a hearing aid. And they were really shocked at how the person with a hearing aid responded to different aspects of the oral environment that we were able to simulate for them. And that caused the audiologists to go away and think we, we have to rethink how to design from the bottom up, as it were, hearing aids. They said, we've got it wrong. They haven't come back yet. So I think they're still doing that. So that's kind of what we've been doing in PAMMU. And one of the problems that we have with Pamela is that, is that it's too small. And, and the smallness is the two reasons why it's small. It's actually, if we want to do a, an experiment with a train, we can make one carriage of a tube train, maybe half a carriage of a big train, which is all right for some things. But if you've got more complexity involved, then that's a bit small. Also, if you want to walk somewhere, Although it's huge by orthopedic standards, the length of the platform there is around about 12 metres. So you get a few steps in there. It's more than you get in most orthopedic laboratories. But essentially, uh, it's still a bit short. So there is an issue about size. But there's also the issue of capacity, which is that it's under such demand that you have to wait a long time to get your booking for an experiment in because we can only do one at a time. So uh, we managed to get some money from the government to... Support an expansion, and we call the expansion PEARL, which is the Person Environment Activity Research Laboratory. And that expansion means that we can basically meet those different demands. So, what do we have in PEARL? Well, we have the first thing we have in PEARL is we have about 44,000 cubic meters space. So, if you can't imagine what 44,000 cubic meters looks like, if you took the quad at UCL and put a roof over it, you'll Looking at something a bit smaller than that. So, this is a little bit bigger than the quad with the roof on it. Give you a rough idea of the scale. Another way of looking at that is that we have on the roof 4,000 square meters of solar panels, and that will generate 600,000 kilowatt hours per year. So, we sell electricity into the grid. This is UCL's first carbon negative building. So inside, we can create environments. So we have a lighting system which is designed to simulate or be able to simulate daylight and sunshine from anywhere on the planet because the actual nature of light changes as you go around the planet because of the angle between the sun and the atmosphere and the earth and so on, So it, cha- and it changes over the time of day. So we can simulate all of that, the difference between morning light and afternoon light and things like that. But of course, we can also, because the lighting system breaks down the light into constituent parts of the spectrum, we can also affect how changes in those light intensities alter the way that people respond. So you can take, for example, something I only discovered about 20 years ago was, was that the photoreceptors in your eye that are not connected with vision. And they are actually connected to your the system that kind of regulates your bodily systems, like the sort of the central clock, as it were. And they work on a particular wavelength. And that's what keeps you awake in the day and and enables you to go to sleep at night. Because the light over the course of a day changes the amount of that particular wavelength in the constituency of light. So we have more of it in the morning, suppresses the release of melatonin, less of it in the afternoon, allows melatonin to be put through the bloodstream. And And of
0: course, you've just described another another rhythm
2: that we find in life. Absolutely. It's the control of your circadian rhythm. And it actually works on a 25-hour cycle. So one of the things that this does is it clicks it back to 24 hours when you wake up because they have to be regular. And so we can see well, what happens if we suppress that even more? What happens if we release it even more? Because we can actually take that wavelength out of the light or put it in. We also have the the spectrum goes slightly, certainly at the very edge of human visual capability. So it's towards the infrared and towards ultraviolet, but not ultraviolet. So we're right at the boundaries of human visual capability, and we can just mix it as we wish. And we can then create the light that we want, whatever it is we need. And, of course, simulate things like street lighting and station lighting and things like that. So we have 100 metres length of space, so we can make 100 metres of street at full size. We can drive cars up and down it. We can have zebra crossings in there. We can swap all the shops around and see if you light the shops in a different order. We can make a town square. We can build a station with platforms. We have carriages coming from West Anglia, Great Northern. They're going to supply us with six carriages, so we can have two, three-car trains, or we can actually have up to four carriages in one length. We can then use those for simulating all sorts of things. And then we have, due to come next year, a Boeing 737 aircraft, so we can look at what that does and how you get on and off aircraft, but also what do you do in the reduced oxygen environment of an aircraft cabin? How does that actually work? What about staff who are working in those environments a lot and so on? So we can look at all of those sorts of things. The sound system. So we have a sound system. This is a a sort of dynamic 3D spatial audio system. So we can create sounds that move around the building. And we can rather like the earphones on your smartphone, for example, you can simulate noise moving from one side to the other and maybe a little bit backwards and forwards. But this actually can physically move the sound around the building. Uh, we can control where sounds are, we can control the acoustics of the building, so we can make you think you're in St Paul's Cathedral, or we can make you think that you're in a, a telephone box. And all of the techniques of how we actually convince you that the sound, which is actually physically emanating from a speaker, maybe a couple of metres in front of you, is actually coming from something 100 metres away.
1: Are you confident that people behave the same way in a controlled environment as they would in real life?
2: Uh, Well, of course, it's a laboratory. If you go to Pearl, the first thing will strike you is it's black. And one of the reasons that it's black is that you can't see the space. Now, right at the beginning, I was talking about savannah and wide spaces and cities and narrow spaces. So this, of course, is a building. So it has walls. But actually, you can't see the walls, because it's black. The only things you ever see in there are what we want you to see. But the bigger trick is that we, in those walls, we put 175 million holes. And the 175 million holes are there to allow sound pressure waves to pass through the holes into the 300 millimeters of insulation so they don't come back. So it has no echo. And what that means is that your ears can't tell you how big the space is because you don't hear any reflection. And your eyes can't tell you how big the space is because you can't see any space. And so as far as your brain is concerned, you're in the middle of just nothing. And then we put things there. Obviously, in the end, we have to do things in the real world. But what this enables us to do is to control what that real world is. And so we can understand how you respond to differences in the environment and changes and different sounds and different um, movements and so on. We can understand how you do that so that we can then take you to a real environment where we can't do all the monitoring that we can do in the laboratory. And then we can see how the two coincide. And so that's kind of what it is. It is a laboratory, just like any, any laboratory it's a kind of test tube. So it's obviously a little version of the real world, but it's one where we can control a lot of the environment. Another one is that we have some smell machines. So we have an olfaction system, so we can actually insert smell into the environment. And this is where the Institute for Sustainable Heritage has been very interesting, because they have equipment which can capture smell from the environment. And what I've been talking with them about is they can capture a smell from some environment, and we can produce that in our environment. So what that means is that we could, for example, build a Greek amphitheater. Well, a bit of a Greek amphitheater. I think that would... They're huge. But a bit of a Greek amphitheater. Let's just take that as an example. So we can have a Greek amphitheater. So Greek and Latin could come and perform a Greek play. I think this would be fantastic, right? But this Greek play will have Greek sunlight. It will have Greek sounds. It will have Greek smell. And so you can actually start to build the whole multisensorial atmosphere of your Greek play inside that environment. And I think that would be a really interesting Exercise to find out what that would actually mean. It's sort of interesting piece of curiosity. We also have smoke, so we can change the visibility. So we can make it very foggy in there. We can reduce the visibility down to about 60 centimeters. So we can see what happens where you have an environment where you know where it is, and now we make it foggy, and now you have to think where it is. So, how much of that environment have you remembered visually, and how much are you depending on other senses to be able to guide you around it when the environment is exactly the same and the lighting is exactly the same, but the visibility is different?
0: It sounds like you've got the tools to test and possibly disrupt a lot of the assumptions about urban design. I'm just wondering how these will be used to design future cities or or retrofit the cities we have.
2: I think the key to that one is the P of the, the people. Because this is very much about understanding that question of the city being a person and people being the essence of the city. And therefore, to do stuff with cities, you've got to have that. So the kinds of conversations I've been having with urban designers and landscape architects and planners and so on is about the opportunities for exploring being very innovative about making cities new or old, going back to the retrofit question, able to accommodate people much much more easily we have a 500 seat pop-up theater in pearl so we can bring people in and say well if you were to light that street like this this is what it would look like but if you lit it like that that that's what it would look like now which one do you prefer what do you feel more comfortable in what can you do and have that kind of conversation i think is going to be a far quicker way of transforming urban design and making it more people-centered than me writing a report and saying, I've done all these very clever experiments. And when the light was at this frequency and the rhythmic content was like this, and that, nobody would read that and nobody would do anything with it. But actually, if I brought the leader of the local council down there and showed him what the difference on his square would be, I think that could be really interesting and it would change things. So I think it's a very transformative building. Because first of all, nothing is the same. We build our own worlds in that building and we know what those worlds are, which is arguably true about the one that we live in. And we can then enable people to help to create their own worlds and to be able to make that possible, even remotely, I think we can do that.
1: I'm afraid we have to wrap up soon. But if I may ask a final question, if you, Nick, were put in charge of building an ideal city, who would you hire and how would you go about planning and building it?
2: Who would I hire? That is a really interesting question. There would be a sequence, I think, for something like that. I would hire people like actors and musicians and artists and get them to work together about space and spaces, because not all space has to be the same. And then we would offer different things to people um, so whether we have to hire the people for that's good question and then when we've got all that begun to be sorted out then we have figured out well so these people want this kind of stuff and they've had these opportunities and excitements and they know they don't want this thing but they do want that thing and they do want the creative they want the dynamism and all those things that we get out of having artists and sculptors and musicians and actors and dancers and things like that to create the world, because that's what those people do. They create worlds in your imagination. They create that. And then I would go to the architects and the engineers and say, so how can you make that? I think what we would tend to do now is we go to the architects and the engineers first. If you just assume you can go and ask people what they want, there's a huge tendency to say they want what they've got. There's a huge inertia. And that's why you need artists and the musicians in first, before anything else has happened, to tease out how people imagine and how they imagine the world to be. And from there we can start to build up so, okay, so how do we build that imagination? And how do we make it able to evolve? And all of that, which are much more technical questions. But I think the first thing to build a new city, you need imagination. So I don't know whether my employment bill would be, I think it'd be quite expensive. Well I suppose I don't know whether they're expensive or not, but I guess it would be quite expensive.
0: (laughs) Well, well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. So Nick, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion about the future of cities and the need to bring in the whole of the creative industries to help us imagine a future that we can't see without taking a really broad cross-disciplinary approach to the problem. So thanks again. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: This episode of Disruptive Voices was presented by James Paskins and Nina Gwash and produced by the UCL Grand Challenges team. Our guest today was Professor Nick Tyler. The music is by David Seste. For more episodes of Disruptive Voices, visit UCL Minds podcast or follow us on Twitter at Grand Challenges.